Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. Please note, this podcast is a little racy in spots. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. Hi, I'm Mike Carey. I'm going to be reading on Writer's Block today from my first novel, The Devil You Know, just released by Warner Books. I'm probably best known for my comics work, Lucifer, which is the adventures of the devil after he retires and goes to live in Los Angeles, where he runs a piano bar, Um, Hellblazer, which was filmed as Constantine, and I'm currently writing The X-Men and Ultimate Fantastic Four for Marvel. But as I said, this is my first novel, The Devil You Know, and the first adventure of Felix Castor, Freelance Exorcist. When you hear that phrase, imagine a man in a trench coat walking the mean streets. Castor is an exorcist, as Raymond Chandler might have imagined an exorcist. He's not a man of faith. He's not a man of religion. He's just a guy with a saleable skill that he's turned into a somewhat precarious living. And there is a demand for the services that Castor offers, for reasons that become apparent in this first extract. This was ten years or more after the dead first began to rise. I mean, to rise in sufficient numbers that it wasn't an option anymore just to ignore them. They'd always been there, I guess. Certainly as a kid, I was seeing them on and off whenever I was in any place that was quiet or where the light was dim. An old man standing in the street, staring at nothing as the mothers pushed their strollers right through him and kept on walking. A little girl, hovering irresolute by the swings in the local playground, through all the watches of the night and never clambering on for a ride. A shadow in the deeper shadows of a narrow alley that didn't move quite in sync when a car went by. It wasn't ever much of a problem, though, even for people like me who could actually see them. Most ghosts keep themselves to themselves, and it's not like you have to feed them or clean up after them. Ninety-nine out of a hundred will never give you any trouble at all. I learned not to mention them to anybody and not to look at them directly in case they cottoned on to me and started talking, It was only bad when they talked. But something happened a few years before the page turned on the old millennium, as though some cosmic equivalent of a big spiteful kid had come along and poked a stick into the graveyards of the world just to see what would happen. What happened was that the dead swarmed out like ants, the dead and a few other things. Nobody had any explanation for it, At least not unless you counted the many variations on We are living in the last days and these are the signs and wonders that were foretold. That was an argument that played fairly well up to a point. The Christians and the Jews had put their money on a bodily resurrection and that was what some people seemed to be getting. But the Bible is strangely coy on the subject of the weir kind, hedges its bets on demons and draws a big fat blank on ghosts. So the Christians and the Jews didn't really seem to be any better place than the rest of us to call the toss. The theological arguments raged like brush fires, and under the smoke that they threw up, the world changed, not overnight, but with the slow, irrevocable progress of an eclipse or ink soaking into blotting paper. The promised apocalypse didn't come, but new testaments were written anyway and new religions kick-started. New and exciting careers opened up for people like me. Even the map of London got redrawn, which as far as I was concerned was the hardest thing to believe and accept. I was born elsewhere, you have to understand, up north, 200 miles from the smoke, and my view of London is an outsider's view, assembled in easy pieces over the last 20 years. When I pictured the city in my mind, 
I tend to see it in simplified schematic terms, like the cage full of snakes, orange on green on blue, that you see on the inside cover of the A to Z. Where the biggest snake, the king python, the Thames, runs right through the middle, that's the null zone. Ghosts can't cross running water, and they don't even like the sound of it all that much. Lesser demons and weird things will usually balk at it too, although that's not so widely known. So the river is a good place to be, unless, for some reason, communing with the dead is something that you actually want to do. Walk a few streets in any direction, though, until you can't see the Thames at your back anymore, and you're in a city that's been a major population centre ever since Gog and Magog sat down on their two hills sometime around the middle of the Stone Age and put their feet up. Sacked by war, gutted by riot, raised by fire, and scourged by plague, it's got a ratio of about twenty dead to every one living inhabitant, and that ratio is weighted most heavily in the centre, where the city is oldest. It's not as bleak as it sounds, because not everyone you lay in the earth comes back. There are a whole lot who are content to sleep it out, and those who do come back will often stay in one place rather than wander around and inspire sphincter-loosening terror in the living. Most ghosts are tethered to the place where they died, with the place where they were buried coming in a close second, a fact that turned the blocks around inner-city cemeteries into instant slums. Zombies are just spirits even more tightly circumscribed than that, effectively haunting their own dead bodies. And as for the loop gurus, the weir kind, well, we'll get to them in their place. But sometimes ghosts go walkabout, impelled by curiosity, loneliness, solicitude, boredom, mischief, a grudge, a concern, an addiction, some unfinished business anyway that won't let them lie quiet until some still distant judgment day. I'm talking about the dead as if they had human emotions and human motivations. I apologize. It's a common mistake but any professional will give you a different point of view on the subject whether you ask for it or not. Ghosts are reflections in funhouse mirrors, distorted echoes of past emotions lingering on way past their sell-by date. Sometimes there's a fragment of consciousness still there directing them so that they can respond to you in crude and simple ways. More often not. The last thing you want to do is to make the mistake of thinking of them as people. That's the bottom line, as the Ghostbusters count it. Sentimental anthropomorphisms aren't exactly an asset in my line of business. But sentient or not, a close encounter with a ghost can be an upsetting, not to say seat-wetting, experience. That's where the exorcists come in, both the official church-sponsored ones, who are usually either idiots or fanatics, and the freelancers like me who know what they're doing. My vocation had shown itself on the day after my sixth birthday, when I got tired of sharing my bed with my dead sister Katie, who'd been run over by a truck the year before and made her go away by screaming scatological playground rhymes at her. Yeah, I know. If ever there was a poison chalice that had a clearer Hazchem warning written down the side of it, it's one I never came across. But how many people do you know who actually get to choose what they do for a living? My careers teacher said I should go into hotel management. So exorcism it was. Until now. Now I was on sabbatical. I'd had my fingers burned pretty badly about a year and a half before and I was in no hurry to start playing with matches again. I told myself I'd retired. I made myself believe it for a good part of every day. But Castor hasn't retired, or rather, he's tempted to come out of retirement again, to take on one last case, because basically he needs the money very badly. He's contacted by the man who runs the Bonington Archive, a very large collection of documents, like a, a library in the centre of London. And the Bonington Archive is being haunted by a strange ghost that seems to have no face. 
just a red veil in place of a face. So we see in this second extract how ghosts have come to play a big part in Castor's world and in people's lives, people's everyday lives. This is Cheryl Talamac, one of the minor characters in the novel, explaining why she's actually quite fond of the ghost that Castor has been brought in to eradicate. Cheryl came back with the drinks, and Rich stopped fairly abruptly to help her unload the glasses from the tray she was carrying. So you reckon you've got her in your sights, he asked me, as he settled down with his bottle of Bex. You mean Alice? Nah, the ghost. Cheryl handed me my pint with practised hands that didn't spill a drop. Not yet, no. I'm working on it. It shouldn't take too long. Can't be quick enough for Rich, said Cheryl. He hates my Sylvie. Rich shook his head emphatically. No, first fair. I don't hate her. I just wanted to sod off to her eternal reward, preferably with her engines belching hellfire. Cheryl laughed and prodded him with her elbow as she sat down next to him. Bastard, she said. We toasted her in beer and vodka, and she responded with a mock solemn bow. Thank you, thank you, she said, and next year in Jerusalem, or at least somewhere that's not here. Chink, chink, chink. Cheryl wiped her mouth with the back of her hand and belched unapologetically. For some reason I found that endearing. So is this your first ghost, I asked shifting the topic from the loaded issue of how far I was along with the job, and to be fair, the seemingly even more loaded issue of Alice's right of succession. Tyler and Rich nodded, but Cheryl, taking another swig of her drink, made a negative wave of the hand. Nah, she said, when she downed her mouthful. Not mine. I've had two already, and one was a bloke I went out with. You went out with a... Tyler echoed, bewildered. When he was still alive, I mean. I was haunted by the ghost of my ex-boyfriend. Is that sick or what? Danny Payton, his name was. He was lovely. His hair was all goldy blonde, and he worked out so he had muscles on him, she gestured vividly. But he was bisexual, which he didn't ever tell me, and he was two-timing me with a bloke. And this bloke had another bloke, who beat Danny up and threw him in the Thames. Except he didn't, because he missed. I mean, he threw Danny off Waterloo Bridge, but it was right up close to the edge, and Danny landed on the bank, in about two inches of water. Broke his neck. Cheryl was getting into her story, and she clearly enjoyed our silent attention. Anyway, I went to the funeral, and I had a good cry, but mostly I was thinking, you dirty bugger, you should have kept it in your trousers when you weren't with me. What goes around comes around. Cheryl, that's sick, Tyler protested, wincing. You can't go to a funeral and be thinking stuff like that. Why not? Cheryl asked, appealing to the rest of us with her arms outspread. You can't make your thoughts wear black, John. It's just the way I am, okay? I was missing him, yeah. And I was sorry he was dead, but he was dead because he'd been shagging another bloke, so I couldn't help feeling a bit pissed off about it. That's part of what funerals are for, in my opinion. You get it out of your system. You get closure, yeah? Except it turned out that Danny didn't. She paused dramatically, rolling her eyes at us. I got back home and he was only there in my bloody bedroom, wasn't he? Not a stitch on him. I screamed the place down, and my mum and my stepdad came running in and then they hit the roof. Mum was wetting herself because it was a ghost, and Paulus, my stepdad, husband number two, Felix, yeah, was all crazy-eyed because it was the ghost of a white boy. He was calling me all the sluts and whores, and Danny was reaching out to me like he wanted to give me a big hug, so Paulus tried to hit him and smashed his hands through the window instead. Cheryl laughed at the memory, and I laughed along with her. It was a dark enough scene, but she made it funny, because her voice orchestrated it like a white whore farce. Tyler was looking like a hanging judge, though, and even Rich was shaking his head in pained awe. You always do that, he said. You tell these awful stories and then you laugh. And there's never a punchline. There is a punchline. I exercised him. 
You what? Rich exclaimed, and Cheryl cast a sly look at me. There's not a closed shop or something, is there? She asked. You know, like for actors or train drivers. Yeah, sorry, I said, there is. The union's going to have your arse. Well, it is my best feature, she smirked. See, I didn't mind him being there at first. You got no right saying you don't like something if you haven't tried it, Rich finished. But Jesus wept, Cheryl, a ghost? The ghost of someone I really liked. It was nice still having him around. I used to chat with him about stuff. He never said anything back, but I knew he was listening. He was like a mate you can share secrets with. But you know, time goes on, sort of thing. I couldn't really take another bloke up to my room if the ghost of the last one was still sitting there. And he was so sad, like Sylvie's sad. In the end, I thought it was probably best if we ended it. So what I did, right? I gave him the standard dump speech, like as if he was still alive. I sat down on the bed next to him, and I said I wanted us still to be friends and everything, but I didn't love him in that way, and I wasn't going to go out with him any more. You know how it goes. At least I'm assuming you do. And all the while I was talking to him, he was getting fainter and fainter until, when I more or less finished, he just went out like a light. Cheryl pondered on that for a moment, her expression sliding down the register from sunny to sombre. And then I really cried. The silence from the rest of us was a testament to Cheryl's skills as a storyteller. It was broken by John Tyler. You really know how to throw a party, don't you? He said gloomily. Yeah, said Cheryl pointedly. I do. And if you get snarky on me, John, you won't be coming on Sunday. Sunday? I asked. My mum's getting married, said Cheryl. Again. At the Brompton Oratory. Fourth time around the track, this is. They don't say till death does do part for my mum. They say, who's holding ticket number 23? Anyway, I had a brainwave. I asked Geoffrey if we could have the reception in the reading room at the archive, and he said, yeah, we could, so everyone's invited. So you don't hold it against your mum that she threw you out on the street, I asked, more surprised at that than at the ghost story. I already suspected it would take a lot to shake Cheryl. She laughed. We tear pieces off each other, and then we're all right again. We've always been like that. I've got no time for all their bloody boyfriends and fiancés and husbands, though. They're a right shower. This latest one's worse than Paulus and Alex put together, if you ask me. But he won't last. They never do. What about your dad? I inquired. Nothing about my dad, Cheryl answered shortly. She made a face and shook her head. Here, said Rich, trying to pull the agenda back onto safe ground. Joke about ghosts, right? This big expert on paranormal phenomena is doing a lecture tour of the UK and he gets to Aberystwyth on a Friday night, and he goes into the hall and it's packed, shuffles his notes, clears his throat and says, let's just see where we stand. How many people here believe in ghosts? Every hand in the room goes up. Excellent, says the professor. That's what I value, truly open minds. Okay, how many of you have actually seen a ghost? Half the hands go down, half stay up. Good enough, says the professor. And out of you lot, how many have spoken to a ghost? Maybe twenty hands stay up. And the professor nods. Yes, that takes some courage, doesn't it? How many of you have touched a ghost? All but three hands go down. Finally, the professor says, how many of you have made love with a ghost? Two hands go down, but one right at the back of the room stays up. It's a little old guy in a grubby mac. Sir, you amaze me, says the professor. I've asked that question a thousand times, and nobody has ever answered yes to it. I've never met anybody before you who's had sex with a ghost. Ghosts, says the old guy. Ah, oh, sorry, I thought you said goat. Cheryl guffawed, and John said he'd heard it before. Jokes about goats followed, and for a while we all tried to think of one that was clean. It turns out there aren't any. Rich bought the next round of drinks, and I took care of the one after that. 
John downed his third vodka breezer with indecent haste and claimed a prior engagement. Rich gave him a meaningful look, but he clearly wasn't going to be shamed into standing his round. He wished us all good night and left without a backward glance. Tight bugger, muttered Rich. I'll leave him alone, said Cheryl. He can't help it. You've seen what he buys himself for lunch. He just gets off on counting his pennies, that's all. What are his politics? I asked casually. His politics? Cheryl repeated blankly. I haven't got the foggiest. I don't think he's got any, unless supporting Fulham counts. Why? He looked really unhappy to see me. I wondered if he was a breather. Oh! She saw what I was getting at then, and her eyes widened as she considered the possibility. I don't know. Maybe. He's never seemed to give much of a toss for his fellow man, to be honest. But they're an odd bunch, aren't they? My flatmate where I lived before was one of them, and she used to go along to the cemetery at Waltham Cross on weekends and read aloud from Gibbon's Decline and Fall. I suppose because she thought the ghost might need the intellectual stimulation. It always seemed a bit cruel to me. The Breath of Life movement, or the Breathers, as most people refer to them, are a grassroots pressure group campaigning for changes in the law governing the risen dead. Ghosts and zombies, they say, are still people. They have rights that need to be recognised and defined in law. Some of them feel the same way about the more colourful groups among the undead, but there's a certain amount of controversy there. What rights do the possessed have, for example, and who gets to enjoy them? Host body or invading spirit? And what about the weir? It had all turned into a bit of a circus. The government, new Labour, but with a bit of the shine gone, had made some cautious statements about legally recognising the dead, causing the Tories to point dramatically quivering fingers at the law of inheritance. How could it be expected to work if it turns out that you can take it with you after all? What about criminal trials? Could a dead man give evidence against his murderer, or stand trial for murder himself? And if he were found guilty, how in hell were you supposed to punish him? And so on and so on. And my own profession, of course, had come in for a whole lot of attention. If the dead had rights, then presumably one of those rights was not to be blasted into the void by a cheerful tune from a tin whistle, or by a poem, a mechanical drawing, a series of complicated hand gestures, or whatever other form of cantrip the exorcist happened to favour as he slashed and burned his way through the natural order of things. I let all this wash over me as far as I could, but the breathers were getting to be something of a worry for me, as the other earlier right to life as had been for the staff at abortion clinics. However, neither Rich nor Cheryl remembered John Tyler ever saying anything on the subject one way or the other, which made it more or less certain that he wasn't part of the movement. You could never get them to shut up about it, short of gagging them with mouldering grave cloths. The party passed its cusp and started to wind down. Cheryl went off to powder her nose, and Rich, who was a bit maudlin drunk by this time, started in to tell me about some of his walking tours in Eastern Europe, but ran out of steam in the middle of a rambling anecdote about a club in Prague called Kaikobad, where they have transsexual strippers. His eyes seemed to defocus, which when a guy is in his cups either means he's thinking deeply or he's about to pass out. Either way, I figured it was about time to call it a night. Hey, mate, Rich said, rousing suddenly. I think you've made a new friend. What, Cheryl? I asked, a little thrown. He obviously couldn't mean John Tyler. Rich waved that suggestion away impatiently. No, no, not Cheryl. Cheryl talks a good fuck, but she's never been known to deliver. I meant the oversized geezer in the corner. He didn't point, just rolled his eyes off to the right and then back. I followed his lead, not jerking my head around, but picking up my drink and then letting my gaze traverse the bar slowly and casually. It wasn't hard to guess who he meant. A big, heavy-set guy sitting near the door, jammed into a tight booth that made his already impressive bulk loom even larger. 
His oddly shapeless body was packed into an antique-looking grey herringbone suit, and whatever it said on the label, there had to be a whole lot of X's in front of the L. His bald head glistened, and his pale, almost colourless eyes shied away as they caught my stare. As he looked away, I experienced the sudden cessation of a feeling so tenuous it had slipped under my guard. It was the sensation that Peel had described to me over the phone, the sensation like a light, even pressure over the whole of the skin, of knowing that I was being looked at. Okay, file that one for later, I guess. I didn't know who he was, but I knew what he was well enough, and he probably knew what I was too. That could even have been why he was watching me. Exorcists excite very real and very natural fears in certain quarters. Cheryl came back from the loo right then, which was my cue to head on out. I made my excuses, gave the birthday girl a kiss on the cheek, and left. I walked past Euston Station and back up Eversholt Street for reasons I can't even remember. Maybe I just fancied a walk, although it was still cold and blustery, or maybe I was deliberately choosing a route that would take me by the archive. I was on the other side of the road, though, so when I saw the woman standing out on the pavement next to the doorway of the Bonington, her arms hanging at her side and her head bowed, my first thought was that it was Alice calling it a day after a stupendous stint of unpaid overtime. Then I registered the hood, and a moment after that, the way her body became more and more washed out and hard to distinguish from its surroundings the closer you got to the ground. And finally she raised her head to stare at me, which stopped me dead in my tracks, because the stare was being conducted without the benefit of eyes. The upper half of the woman's face was a formless, rippling plane of undifferentiated red. Dark hair decorously tousled, then cherry-red lips and a neotonously rounded chin. Nothing. Nothing but redness in between. What she was wearing was harder to determine. She was dressed in white, the way everybody said, but white what? There was too little of her to form a judgment from. She raised an arm to point toward the building, and it was a bare arm, spectrally pale. It seemed as though she was fighting against the pull of gravity, her movements as strained and slow and full of terrible effort as the way your legs pump in dreams when you're running away from the bogeyman. I pulled myself together and stepped out into the road, almost into the path of a Routemaster bus. The blur of its horn floated behind it like the bellow of a wounded animal as I jerked back at the last moment out of its path. I thought she'd be gone now, her dramatic exit hidden by the bus in line with all the best movie clichés, but she was still there, and as I broke into a run I tried to assemble the sense that went with the vision, the fix. I began to drop the mesh of my weird perceptions over her, dredging up notes in sequence, turning her into music. It was hard. Even though she was there in front of me, the trace was so faint it almost wasn't there at all. It was as though I was looking at her through the wrong end of a telescope. That wasn't something that had ever happened to me before, and I didn't understand it. But if she stayed where she was for just a few moments longer, it wouldn't matter. Then a door opened about twenty feet behind her, and bright white light stabbed through her. She turned away, and as she turned, she disappeared. I found myself staring at John Tyler, who was looking at me with a startled rabbit expression on his face. He had a satchel in his hand, which he lifted up by way of explanation, or protection, because he looked like he was expecting to be spanked. I went back for my bag, he said. Was that... Oh, shit, were you... I ran through a range of answers in my mind, most of them revolving around the word fuckwit, but none of them would achieve anything beyond the immediate emotional catharsis. So, lock the door behind you, was all I said over my shoulder as I walked away.
To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.